Good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, Bruce Agnew. Welcome to the Future of Flight. Uh, I am the co-chair of the Pinwood Transportation Group. I'm also the director of the ACES Northwest Network. Uh, our ACES co-chairs are Tom Alberg from Madrona Venture Group, uh, who is a former Amazon board member, and Brian Mistily, CEO of INREX, a global navigation uh, transportation company based in Kirkland. I wanna thank our sponsors, Emily Whitman and Aaron Herrenshaw at AFA, Aerospace Futures Alliance in particular, as well as Lori Brown, who helped circulate our um, announcement to her Association of Unmanned Vehicle Systems International Group. And by the way, we will be having a session with them on, on this topic tomorrow afternoon. You can go to the AUVSI website to find out details. PINWER is a public-private partnership created by statute in 1991, five Northwest states working with five Western Canadian provinces and territories. Our session is part of the Pinwar Rising Economy Week. Uh, we've had 30 sessions and they've been great. Yesterday, I was part of a panel briefing the Canadian ambassador to the US and the acting US ambassador to Canada on the economic impacts of the pandemic. And speaking of aligning federal, state and provincial policies regulations and a topic for today, tax incentives. We are talking about the future of flight with an expert panel of moderators from Canada and the US. For the next 90 minutes, interaction between the moderators and panel is our primary goal. So we've dispensed with the typical PowerPoints. Rather, we direct you uh, to click on the chat room where you can connect to the Penware website where our panels Panel has posted PowerPoints, reports, and news clips that serve as a reference library. Penwer will also be preparing a report on the session and circulate to federal, state, provincial leaders, as well as industry folks uh, before the end of the year. Uh, I want to acknowledge today's announcement uh, by the FAA to allow Boeing, the Boeing 737 MAX to fly again after 20 months. This is good news for Boeing. Good news for our Boeing family of workers and subcontractors, and certainly good news for the Pinwar economy. Boeing is a big part of the future of flight, and their new technologies will, will be welcome. Uh, today, we are probing three general areas. First, the incredible opportunity to reduce carbon through electric, electrification of flight for both fixed wing and seaplanes. This is a reality today, as you will hear. Um, Vandana will, our Representative Slatter will also highlight a, a personal interest that she has in workforce training and the impact of the pandemic. Uh, the second topic is the preservation of essential air service in communities negatively impacted by the pandemic. We're pleased to have uh, Air North, the Canadian based company, and they will review their efforts uh, north of the border. I also want to reference, we won't have time to get into it, but I want to reference on the website, the U.S. Essential Air Service Program that was initiated in 1978 that supports air service to 60 Alaska and 115 lower 48 communities like Montana, Oregon, and Idaho. Uh, this is a model that the, our Canadian colleagues may want to adopt uh, in the future. And finally, the coordination of EVTOL, that's uh, Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing uh, with Surface Transportation Systems for the Cascadia Corridor and the Northwest Region. Uh, experts say that we, we will see advanced flight 
aircraft, Avtol aircraft in uh, operating sometime between 2025 and 2027. Uh, are we planning the necessary vertiports on the ground to make good multimodal connections? So I'm gonna turn it over now to uh, our distinguished moderators, Yolanka Wolf, who is the co-director of CAMI, the Community Air Mobility Initiative. CAMI is a national expert on the intersection of surface and aviation planning. Uh, and Representative Vandana Slatter, who is a leading member of the House Transportation Committee, uh, also a Canadian uh, born uh, state representative from Bellevue. And uh, Vandana's personal passion has been aviation and technology. So we're delighted that she took uh, time out of her busy schedule getting ready for the legislature to participate in our session today. Uh, Yolanka? find the unmute button there. All right, thank you for the introduction, Bruce. Um, I'm really pleased to co-moderate today on behalf of CAMI, the Community Air Mobility Initiative. CAMI is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the responsible integration of advanced air mobility into communities by providing education, communication, and collaboration. CAMI understands the importance of connecting communities and industry by working with all stakeholders to develop advanced air mobility that integrates with existing and future metropolitan and regional transportation systems. CAMI educates and equips state and local leaders, decision makers, planners, and the public with the information that they need to set policies and design infrastructure and systems to successfully integrate aviation into daily transportation needs. Uh, we're a virtual organization. We operate globally, but we are located here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we were founded last year, uh, prompted by four underlying principles. First, technology is redefining flight through the development of electric propulsion, autonomous systems, and data-driven mobility as a service. These technologies lower the operating costs of small aircraft on short routes, they increase the number of access points to the air, and they stimulate latent demand for flight where ground transportation is used today. Second, Electric aircraft, both fixed wing and vertical takeoff and landing or eVTOL, can make aviation safer, quieter, greener, and more economical. It is a sustainable solution that can serve as one mode in a multimodal metropolitan or regional transportation system. To do so, however, it must integrate seamlessly into that system. Third concept, or principle is that the aircraft are here or almost here. But so far, this has been a technology push by industry. It's now time for local jurisdictions to understand, to plan for, to budget for, and to begin to incorporate electric flight into their transportation systems by de developing a market understanding and market demand. And fourth, key to the implementation of advanced air mobility is public acceptance. And at CAMI, we believe there are four key components to achieving acceptance. Trust, a demonstration of clear and broad public benefit, limiting any adverse impacts, and integrating uh, uh, advanced air mobility into transportation systems. 
So as Bruce said, while we may be a number of years away from urban air taxis, we have the opportunity now to begin implementation of this new technology through emergency services operations and through fixed wing electric aircraft flying shorter routes that until now have not been economically viable. And in fact, we already have much of the infrastructure that we need to begin this journey. Our regional network of small airports, which have the opportunity to become vital members of our communities and components of our transportation systems. You'll find more information about CAMI, its programs and membership on this conference's webpage. Uh, I believe Betts has put that in the chat. And I also wanna draw your attention to the many educational resources that we have on our website, communityairmobility.org, as well as our Urban Air Policy Collaborative Program for state, provincial, and local agencies and organizations, which has a new cohort beginning in January. And now I'm pleased to turn it over to Vandana. Thank you, Yolanka, and thank you for that, uh, that great uh, overview of what you do and what, what is important. Uh, I'm very honored to be asked to moderate today. Uh, I am a Canadian immigrant. I hail from British Columbia, so I, I do appreciate that call out, Bruce. And I am a non-aviator and a non-aviation specialist, a pharmacist by training and a medical scientist as well. But innovation is the lifeblood of the district that I represent. It's in the 48th district in Washington state, which is on the east side of King County across the water from Seattle. And it is, uh, includes the cities of Bellevue, Redmond and Kirkland. Um, Washington has been leading in aviation and with electric aviation, we can imagine a future of zero airplane emissions while also potentially reviving small community airports and economy and broadening our, our transportation needs. And I've had small companies in my district that have been interested in this and hybrid electric air travel, which was how I was introduced to this topic. Uh, in a bill that I introduced a couple of years ago that has since been uh, worked on, um, I was hoping we could set ambitious goals in Washington to maintain our leadership in this area. And, uh, and since then, we have had a, a working group that has been convening uh, regarding electric air and evaluating infrastructure needs and providing a space to have this discussion, very similar to what we're doing today. The results of which will be a Washington electric aircraft feasibility study with an emphasis on the state of the industry, infrastructure, education and workforce requirements, funding opportunities, and how our state can benefit from continuing to pursue electrification of aviation. And that is due out in the next week or so. Um, it's part of a national endeavor to help pave a path uh, for the eventual adoption of new aviation technologies that address the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and open up new economic opportunities to underserved markets. Uh, Bruce mentioned in his opening that uh, there's also an interest in this conversation around workforce development and edu educational training for manufacturing, uh, pilots and maintainers, and it's a good opportunity for our state and reinforces Washington's influence as an aerospace leader. Um, so it's important that we work with the electric aircraft industry to understand their needs. 
And finally, we just need to pay attention to the impacts aviation has on our environment. I also sit on the Sustainable Aviation Biofuel Workforce, and there's a lot of dialogue around clean fuels and around carbon. And that, all that complete nexus includes, I believe, the impacts aviation has and how we can pursue zero emission propulsion systems, because it's not only a bonus to our economy, but perhaps we can recap even greater rewards by protecting our environment. So uh, when we look to add capacity to states airports, uh, we can also see about uh, how we can also do that responsibly and protect the environment. So I look forward to this conversation and I'm very happy to uh, introduce um, the speakers that we will have that will bring a lot more expertise and engaged discussion, I hope, to this uh, conversation. And if that's okay, I'll just go ahead and proceed. Um, you will have the bios available for them online. And I believe in the chat, there's a link. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll just name their names and their titles and have them give a little bit of an introduction to themselves and the topics they'd like to speak about. So first up, we have Roy Genzarski, the CEO of Magniex. Roy, welcome. Good afternoon, thank you very much. Uh, I have the pleasure of being the CEO of Magni X, which is a, an electric propulsion company focused on aviation. And I'm also the executive chairman of Aviation, the electric aircraft uh, company, both of which are part of the Claremont Aerospace Group. When looking at these three topics, essential air service, uh, be it in Canada or the United States, the electrification of aircraft and coordination of eVTOL, uh, the beauty is I don't need to choose one of them to talk about because all three of them uh, are linked together. If you think about what's happening over the last 10 years, there's been a really strong shift in culture on two topics. One, the on-demand economy. Thanks to companies like Amazon uh, and others, by the way, another wonderful Seattle-based company. Uh, if you look at companies like that, they have been able to train us and get us used to getting things when and where we want them. So as opposed to the supply-based uh, retail, where you had to go to the store where the company decided to set one up, and you had to go in at the times that they decided to be open, Amazon and others have taught us that we are in control. The demand-based retail, demand-based transportation, thanks to companies like Uber and Lyft, demand-based food from companies like Grubhub and others, are things that we control when, where, how much. One of the only industries to not do that is aerospace. In aviation, if I wanna fly anywhere, I have to go to where the airlines have told me they will fly from and to, when they have decided to fly, and how much they're going to charge me. That's one culture shift that's happening that airlines will not be able to avoid very long. The second is environmental awareness. Whether we believe in global warming, whether we believe in uh, environmental changes, it doesn't really matter. What matters is we've all come to be aware of the fact that when we stand next to a car or an aircraft that spews emissions out, that's not good for our health. And so whether you care about the environment or not is a bigger picture, but we all care about our own health and we know emissions are not healthy. So environmental awareness is something that's happening and starting to now impact wallets. In Scandinavia, they have lost airline ticket sales for the shaming of flying in an emissions creating aircraft. And so this is starting to uh, attract and attack wallets. 
The third trend that's happening now, and I will say thanks to, but in big quotation marks, COVID-19, is this notion of perhaps redefining suburbs. We have all been used to having to live next to our place of work, having to slog through traffic. People will drive an hour, an hour and a half in places like New York or, or Los Angeles to get to work, and that's normal. Now with working from home, there are many companies here included in Washington state and I'm sure in other places as well, where companies have said, you know what, this is so good that even if COVID goes away, keep working from home, come up to the office once in a while, et cetera. Imagine now people being able to afford bigger houses, more property, more quiet, cleaner air, less traffic by moving not an hour drive away from where their place of work is, but how about 15 minutes flight away? The beauty of this country, and, and I'm talking about the United States and Canada, and in fact, Western Europe, the infrastructure for aerospace exists. There are over 10,000 airports across North America ready to go, and yet airlines only use a little less than 600 of them pre-COVID. Within COVID now, they're using closer to 400 of them. So the notion of essential air service, that is something that taxpayers should pay for because it's so expensive to fly these large gas guzzling aircraft into small airports, will go away when we introduce the second point of electric aircraft at 40 to 80% lower cost per hour and zero emissions. You won't need to get subsidies to fly into these small communities. You'll do it because it'll be profitable on your own. And when you need to go and fly internationally to London, where it will take a few decades before an electric aircraft can do that, you'll be able to take a small VTOL, uh, or first you'll take a small maybe automated electric car that will take you to a vertiport, put you on a little VTOL that will take you to one of the large hub airports, which will be the only places large aircraft fly in and out of, and there take the normal jet aircraft that hopefully by then will be fueled by either sustainable fuels or liquid nitrogen, or liquid hydrogen, and the multimodal era will begin. But to that end, electric aviation really ties all three elements together. The connection of communities, redefining suburbs, cleaning up the environment, making air service more affordable for everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. And we're, we're already getting questions in the, in the Q&A, so you're definitely inspiring lots of great um, thought processes here. So next up, uh, we have Greg McDougal, McDougal, founder and CEO of Harbor Air. Greg, welcome. Thank you, good afternoon. Um, so I started Harbor Air uh, about almost 40 years ago now as a sort of a young pilot with absolutely no business experience. It was, uh, uh, it's been a bit of a journey to say the least. Um, it's a bit ironic that we are pioneering uh, electric flight, at least the regulation of it and, and trying to get um, aircraft certified for, for electric flight because we, are using legacy aircraft and some of which are, are up to you know 60 years old and uh, so what we're we're doing is um, is we're working with Magniex and uh, fitting retrofitting uh, their electric air, uh, engines and, or motors to our aircraft um, somebody has to be first uh, we decided some years ago that uh, as as a uh, company here in Vancouver that uh, prides itself on being innovative and changing with the times that electrification was something that we were uh, interested in. It was just a question of trying to figure out um, 
how to do it and and uh, how to do it practically. Um, fortunately, um, Magniacs kind of walked in the door because uh, they'd heard that we were interested in in this, and we formed a, a partnership. And uh, and then we, you know, a year later, um, in fact, about a, a little less than a year ago now, we flew the first uh, commercial aircraft with an electric uh, motor on it. Um, obviously, there's a lot of hurdles in the way between um, between us flying our first uh, paying passenger. Um, but those hurdles are certainly not insurmountable and we're getting a lot of uh, help from uh, not only the regulatory side, but um, uh, the political side of getting through the myriad of regulations that are that are required to prove this technology as being as safe or safer than the technology we currently use. Uh, this fits right into um, what we're doing as a company because we're probably the one of the closest uh, airlines to the urban air mobility model, as it were, because we fly in and out of neighborhoods in, in British Columbia. We've become uh, an integral part of the transportation network in, in British Columbia. People use seaplanes the same way that they would uh, the ferry system, the bus system, uh, Uber or whatever. And, uh, and, and it's become a part of a daily way of life in British Columbia in, in terms of their mobility. So um, obviously we wanna um, be ahead of the curve when it comes to figuring out how that's going to evolve. And electric is, is, is certainly uh, the way to do that. We also view um, the journey that people take with us as starting from their place of business or their, or their home and, and the end point being the place of business or their home and the other, and the other um, uh, community that, they're, that we're serving. So, uh, any links that that uh, enhance that um, the uh, expeditiousness of, of people being able to get to our aircraft and then and then fly to the to the next destination are, are obviously uh, something that we're very interested in enhancing and, and Uber and Lyft weren't even in Vancouver until very recently and we were a big promoter of trying to get them here to to, to sort of smooth out the the, the transition. So um, this is all, uh, you know, the technology electric uh, um, evolution for us is, is a big deal. We want to be good neighbors to our, to our you know, our, our airport neighbors, which are, are basically communities now are all around the, the harbors. And, uh, and so the environmental aspect is big for us. The economic uh, aspect is also huge because the, the lower we can lower the cost, the, the more we can expand our market. And, uh, and so that, that's a very important part of the whole thing. Um, we're proud to, to be pioneering this. Uh, we realize there's going to be lots of, lots of challenges along the way, but uh, so far we're getting uh, a lot of assistance and, and as clear a path, I think, as can be hoped for up until this point to try and get the regulatory side of it done. Somebody has to be first. Uh, we're, we're trying to be first. Thank you. Thanks so much, Greg. It's super inspiring. You know, when Roy is talking about what the future could look like, you're actually, as you said, pioneering it. So that's really powerful and it gives us a path. But you're right, it has to be a transportation system that works together. So that's going to take a conversation as to how we move in our lives. Um, I'd like to introduce next Joe Sparling, president of Air North, to join the conversation. Joe, thank you. Welcome. Hi, and thank you. Um, 
uh, I'll start by, I'm going to talk about regional air services and um, I, I'll start by perhaps illustrating the difference or pointing out that there's a big difference between uh, essential air services in Northern Canada and essential air services in larger markets in the South. To put that into perspective, uh, Northern Canada accounts for 40% of Canada's land mass and less than 0.3% of Canada's population. Um, the North is, uh, the Yukon is more than twice the size of Washington with a population of 40,000 people versus your 7.6 million, I think. And we're about half the size of BC, which has 4.7 million people. So uh, pretty small territory. Um, we also don't, uh, it's a 1500 mile drive from Whitehorse to uh, Vancouver to illustrate and, and uh, our community of Old Crow doesn't even have road service, uh, road access at all. Um, so, uh, and we have uh, started our service or operated our service uh, in a typical hub and spoke service with uh, the hub based in the Yukon. And uh, that makes a big difference to our local economy when the hub's in the north, uh, because typically the cash in an air service uh, or an airline network flows from the spoke to the hub. So uh, in our case, uh, we employ uh, more than 12 full-time equivalent northerners for every 100 scheduled departures and our mainline competitor employs less than two northerners per 100 scheduled departures. Our activity accounts for almost 5% of territorial GDP and almost one in 15 Yukoners has an equity stake in the airline, including the Bantad Wichin First Nation from Old Crow with a 49% interest. We've been in business since 1977. Uh, we operate a fleet of uh, five Boeing 737s and uh, three ATR-42 uh, aircraft. Pre-COVID, uh, we served uh, five regional communities and six gateway communities, uh, including Vancouver, Victoria, Kelowna, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Yellowknife, and uh, Ottawa. Now we're down to uh, three regional communities and three gateway communities, uh, Vancouver, Kelowna, and Victoria. And with today's travel restriction announcement, we'll probably be at least temporarily dropping Victoria and Kelowna. Um, we were hit hard, like every airline with uh, COVID-19. Our low for traffic uh, to date uh, was uh, April, uh, when we were down 95% plus. Uh, we've rebounded uh, with the uh, uh, formation of a BC travel bubble with British Columbia in January, or in uh, July, rather. We've rebounded now to where our traffic is about half of what it was uh, year over year. Um, but our peak was in August and uh, we've started our normal seasonal decline now as we go into the fall. And I expect that our, uh, the travel restrictions, which we expect to be announced today, will get us back uh, more towards uh, April uh, levels. We haven't been hit as hard as the uh, international travel sector and as the Southern domestic travel sector. The uh, Air Canada quarter three uh, reports were, was still showing 90% uh, plus year-over-year uh, -year decline in traffic internationally and close to an 80% year-over-year decline in traffic uh, in the southern domestic routes. We're down more like 75% um, in the third quarter and uh, um, <clears throat> so I would suggest that we're probably faring a little bit better than, uh, than uh, other sectors simply because northerners rely on travel more. In our operation we actually can see or could see a light at the end of the tunnel. We need about 300 passengers a day to break even without subsidy. And uh, we were at 233 passengers a day in August. Um, 
but we're we're now down to about 175 a day as we slip into the fall. So we've been very heavily reliant on the uh, uh, federal government emergency wage subsidy program, as well as the uh, there's a Northern Essential Air Services program uh, where the federal government allocated money uh, to the territories to uh, provide essential services. Um, it's made a big difference to us, but quite frankly, we prefer to have uh, more passengers and less subsidy. And uh, one of my observations um, is that a lot of the subsidy dollars are going towards subsidizing empty seats flying around. There are far too many, far, there's far too much capacity in the market. And uh, I think if we can address the capacity uh, dynamic, uh, then carriers will have an easier time of uh, exiting the uh, need for financial subsidy. Um, in fact, uh, in my, by my reckoning, the uh, uh, cost of the excess capacity in the Canadian market has exceeded the amount of subsidies paid. So if we can first address, um, if we can first address uh, ways in which carriers can better match uh, their traffic to their capacity, then I think we'll have an easier time um, uh, exiting uh, from the requirement for financial relief. It's a difficult thing to achieve in a competitive market because uh, um, no carrier wants to be the one to cut back thinking that the other guy is going to uh, take advantage and just add capacity. But I observed that when we started our business in 1977, had we wanted to fly jets between Whitehorse and Vancouver, we would have had to apply to the Canadian Transport Commission and meet the test of public convenience and necessity. Our request would likely have been denied uh, because they would observe that there's not enough traffic in the market to support more than one airline. At that time, the market was generating about 9,000 passengers a month. And in October, that's pretty much what the local market generated, about 9,000 passengers. So we've taken a 40-year backslide uh, in demand. And uh, I think that in addition to financial relief, <clears throat> the government um, would ensure better use of subsidy dollars if at the same time they were to uh, initiate some policy relief. Um, I would suggest that with everybody looking for money, they have a fair bit of leverage. We've asked for two things. Number one, uh, in the North, uh, mandatory interline agreements uh, should be required between air carriers. And uh, number two, uh, given that the mainline carriers flying into the north do not serve the regional communities, um, we would like to see their capacity limited on the mainline gateway routes. We rely on the uh, gateway routes or the jet routes to look after about 85% of our overhead costs. And uh, COVID has gotten our, or reduced our mainline contributions down to about 78% of overheads. And even though we've been able to knock about a third off of our overhead costs, that's putting a lot of pressure on uh, uh, service levels and pricing on our regional routes. So we think that with two asks, number one, mandatory interline agreements, and number two, a capacity cap on uh, mainline access to uh, the uh, uh, gateway markets, we could operate uh, subsidy free, um, hopefully within uh, a reasonable period of time, assuming that demand uh, doesn't backslide on us. Thank you. Thank you. I think you might have partially answered uh, a question that we might have, so maybe we can broaden a little bit later. But I'm just going to pass the baton on to Yolanka to introduce the next two. Thanks, Vandana. 
Uh, and, and I just want to say thanks, Joe. It's really great to hear from um, somebody who has such a wealth and history of experience and is living these issues. Um, I, I think it'll really add to the conversation. Uh, moving forward now, um, the next speaker that um, I want to introduce is J.R. Hammond, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Advanced Air Mobility Consortium. J.R. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Alanka, for that introduction. And we just wanted to express gratitude to the South Island Prosperity Group, as well as Penwar for having us here today, and the excitement to all the fellow panelists uh, who we get to continue discussions on for the rest of today. So I am saying a good afternoon and broadcasting today from Vancouver in Canada, and specifically want to acknowledge the land that we are broadcasting from being the unceded and traditional ancestral, ancestral territories of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and many nations among them. Today, I've got the privilege of talking about Canadian Advanced Air Mobility Consortium, we are a federal not-for-profit mandated to create the exclusive national strategy to implement a zero emission advanced air mobility ecosystem in Canada, moving people, goods, and services through not only the urban and dense areas of our Canadian cities, but critically as well, the rural area. For those of that are familiar with the common cartoon of the past, we're really progressing this idea of the modern day version of the Jetsons. I also wear the hat as the founder of the Advanced Air Mobility Investment Company called Canadian Air Mobility based here in Vancouver, which really brings the focus on the environmental and social aspects of investments within the advanced air mobility ecosystem. So I will pause there just the initial insight and we'll dive into more discussions with our panelists on electric aviation and specifically the eVTOL infrastructure side going forward. Thanks so much, Alanka. All right, thanks, JR. And last but certainly not least, uh, I would like to introduce you to Adrian Lindgren, who is the state and local partnerships lead of the Urban Air Mobility Division of Hyundai Motor Group. Hi, Adrian. Hey, Yolanka, thanks so much for uh, the introduction and thanks to the uh, event organizers for, for getting us all here and having this great conversation um, in the Pacific Northwest is uh, and, you know, stretching up into Alaska and up, up through Canada, such an interesting, I think, geography for this particular type of technology. Um, and at the same time, you know, has a lot of the elements in terms of workforce um, to, to really lead, uh, I think, globally in, in this area. So it's really great to, to have all these voices here. Um, my background is in, I'm an urban planner by training. Um, I'm a veteran of local government. And when I was working in local government, it really kind of coincided with the transportation technology boom that we saw. Um, I got particularly interested in this area and started doing a lot of work. I was working with our major entities in Southern California um, on, on integration of new technology so that we can convert to a zero emission system um, and try to understand how we leverage the transportation investments that are going on um, and how do we integrate technology and create a forward-looking transportation planning environment. Um, I've always been an aviation enthusiast and, you know, the, uh, I think one of the, the cool things that I've seen, of course, in my career has been the, the push on this technology and how far it's come in a relatively short amount of time and what that means in terms of opportunities for aviation to reach a much broader set of people um, than I think have even ever experienced it and how do we kind of democratize aviation in that sense as well. Um, 
coming from some of that planning, transportation planning background, I do know that you know there, there is a challenge with filling every transportation gap with surface-based solutions um, in terms of infrastructure cost per mile, impact to communities. Um, it leaves much to be desired and, and our focus, frankly, on some of that ground-based transportation has had particularly acute impacts on smaller communities of discontinued air services or who uh, maybe don't have the population that seems to justify building additional ground transportation, high-speed rail, et cetera, uh, ground-based solutions. And so, you know, I, I've been particularly interested in electric aviation for its ability to help fill that gap, stimulate economies in, in cities that have been hit by inactive or eliminated air services, and really try and connect communities at a lower cost per, per mile um, infrastructure alternative. <clears throat> um, here at uh, Hyundai UAM, um, you know, we got our start in kind of a legacy of innovation. We got our start in engineering construction and then got into vehicles. Um, now I think we take a lot of pride in the vehicle reliability and affordability. Um, at the same time, I think under our leadership, we see very much the need to optimize transportation and we need to better understand what the role of the OEM is in providing meaningful transportation solutions that provide and you know, enhanced outcomes for the entire mobility network. Um, and in that sense, we're trying to leverage our experience in, in ground and surface transportation at the same time, focus very heavily on partnerships, both commercially um, and with governments to, to really understand what the opportunities are, how can we truly make the best impacts to community and how can we create a mobility marketplace that is really centered on humans and their needs versus kind of the vehicle centered approach that we've seen. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for having me here today. All right, well, thank you, Adrian. And I think we're ready to uh, tran uh, transition over to the Q&A. Um, I will just remind everybody, um, the, the attendees, that down at the bottom of your screen, there you should see Q&A. Uh, and if you click on that, you can enter a question. Your questions can be directed to one of the panelists or they can be open-ended. Um, I see a number of you have already found that. We already have questions coming in. So um, again, please don't use the chat function for questions. Make sure you use the Q&A function. Um, and with, go ahead, Van, Vanda. Yeah. Thanks, Yolanka. That's awesome. Um, yes, and we'll start with a few sort of structured questions to, have the, to keep the conversation going. And then we can move to the Q&A uh, to add a little bit more if that's okay. What do you think, Yolanka? Absolutely. Let's, let's go ahead and start with those structured questions and then go to the Q&A. This will give people an opportunity to think of their questions and input them. Perfect. So um, I have a question for Roy and Greg. And uh, just to think about this, you've outlined the exciting industry initiative for seaplane and fixed wing electrification. What can government and Penwar do to incentivize the expansion of your vision? And I have a part two to the question. It's I'll put it in there, but I'll repeat it later if you need me to, uh, which is with the pandemic causing major unemployment, how do we train our workforce to accelerate the electrification of aviation? And uh, I would just add personally that this is a challenge, but it may also be an opportunity. So I'm curious as to your thoughts around that. So the first is just, you know, what can government Penmore do? And then um, how do you address the pandemic and workforce? So I'll just kind of let Roy and Greg fight over who would like to answer that first. <laughs> oh, you want to go ahead? Uh, you want to go first, Roy? Sure, why not? Uh, so, so a few points I'll make, uh, but I'll start out with something that I just, as we were going through this conversation, looked up now. 
If I wanted to, uh, this weekend, take my wife, uh, leave Redmond, where we live, Redmond, Washington, and go to Wenatchee, 98 miles away. It's a nice little town, apple country, on the east of the Cascades. It's 98 miles away. It's a 31-minute flight. There's a commercial flight to go there. I would have to drive 45 minutes to SeaTac Airport, the only airport I can catch that flight. I'd have to be there an hour ahead of time to get on a 31-minute flight that will cost me $488 per person. $488 US dollars, mind you, not Canadian dollars, US dollars to fly 98 miles. That is absolutely unacceptable. For the same weekend to go to New York, $285 to New York. That's a five and a half hour flight. And by the way, if we really wanted to go and have a trip and go to Seoul, South Korea, $815. That's a 17 hour flight. $815. And yet to go to Wenatchee is almost $500 per person. That's ludicrous. So what does everyone do? They drive two and a half hours. What can government do to change this, to make connectivity different? They can have the, so that I don't use a derogatory French term, uh, they can have the intestinal fortitude to actually put in place aspirational policies. And there's actually good examples of that worldwide. If you look at Norway and Sweden, they have put in place law regulation that says by 2040, all domestic flights in Scandinavia, Norway and Sweden, will be zero carbon. Zero, not less emission, but zero emission by 2040. And that's not that far away. All domestic flights. Now, is this technology today exist to do that? No. But by putting that policy in place, guess, what, guess what's happening in Norway? The flurry of industry and economic growth around electric aviation is like crazy. We're getting phone calls off the hook from Norway. But in the US and Canada, we don't really want to impose that type of thing. So we hope that industry does it. If government were to say, let's not go completely crazy and say all domestic flights in Canada and North America, let's say domestic flights that are less than 200 miles, what electric aircraft can do less than 500 miles. You know what, let's make it easy. Less than 100 miles have to be zero carbon. That will completely change the way people look at things. If they introduce incentives to phenomenal operators like Greg that say, I will support you for going green and I will help you by providing financial incentives, airport inf incentives, seaport incentives, so that the infrastructure and the aircraft and integration that you need, Greg, to fly is supported like you when you buy, for example, here in the US, I bought recently a Kia Nero Soul. Adrian, great family of cars, by the way, that, that Kia and Hyundai produce. A Kia Nero electric. Uh, I got 7,500 bucks subsidy from the government and another 500 bucks for installing a charger in my home. But for airplanes, nothing like that exists. And so if governments were to do that, create aspirational policy and incentives for operators, for airports, for manufacturers, we would see something way more advanced and way more akin to the flurry of activity happening in Europe. Thank you. I just wanted to quickly add that the bill that I introduced originally was aspirational in that space for Norway. We didn't do distance. We just did percent takeoff and landing around 30, 35%. But I completely agree with you, which is why you have to lobby members in, of it, 
government to the, for this. So, sorry, just had to put that in there, Greg. <laughs> right. Well, it, just 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 to sort of pick up on on, on Roy's theme there, um, you know what what we've experienced over the last few years uh, in terms of uh, you know government cooperation, quote unquote, um, has has been really. Um, sort of rapidly sliding backwards into more and more bureaucracy. And uh, just a case in point, I mean, if you talk about, you know, the development of, of urban air mobility, obviously it, 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 it involves uh, new and innovative uh, vertiports and, and different, you know, different um, infrastructure that doesn't uh, exist today. And, uh, you know, right from the fundamentals of getting charging units down on docks and different things that, that are required to do this. Um, the amount of, of bureaucracy that we encounter now is is really growing in, in you know exponentially and uh, just a case in point we have a, a dock uh, that we're trying to put in in, in a nearby community Squamish uh, you know five years ago we would have just put the dock in and and um, and then we deal with Transport Canada on the on the flight flight regulation side. Uh, we've been months and months um, just trying to get this dock in, and and every time we you know kind of get to the finish line, the, the goalposts get moved again. So uh, so my fear is that that really you know that the, the sort of the, the the bureaucracy in general is growing in terms of putting these impediments in the way, and uh, I think there's going to have to be a, a shift in 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 the way people think about uh, uh, facilitating this kind of innovation. And and figuring out um, how to how to you know uh, how to more rapidly get through these layers of bureaucracy. It's almost like we're cranking out you know bureaucrats every day out of the universities and putting them in positions where they really don't understand what what the heck they're doing, and except for putting up barriers, and that's a big problem. So that that's something we've got to deal with. On the employment side, um, you know, right now COVID has shifted everything so dramatically. Um, on one side of it, we've been able to sort of redeploy uh, people that, that might otherwise be involved in maintaining our regular fleet into, into this project. And so that's been a benefit. Um, but on, on, on the other side of it, obviously the economic pins have been pulled out from underneath us. So there's, there's, uh, there's a, a lot of a focus on just how do you, how do you survive uh, through to when we get this back on the rails again. Um, so, so the distraction of all of that becomes pretty um, uh, serious in terms of trying to keep your company financially intact and, and, and sort of, you know, you, you lose focus on the projects that are kind of ancillary to your development. And, and, and so that's, that's a, indeed a negative. But I guess, um, uh, you know, picking up on, on a positive there, I guess it would be that we've been able to sort of redeploy people's expertise to a certain extent um, to to the to the project that we're you know trying to put forward on on this uh, on on this electrification of this aircraft. Pandana, uh, this is Bruce. I'm going to interject a, a comment sure. just to respond to that. Um, yesterday, uh, we had a delegation of Penware folks that um, met with the Canadian and U.S. ambassadors and. One of our five priorities was to streamline the permit process, which has been uh, kind of developed archaically uh, without, and this is an important point, without changing the substance of the environmental laws. There's just uh, ways that the federal and provincial and state and local need, need to do uh, that permit review 
um, consecutively rather than concurrently. This is a huge issue for Penware and uh, something that with this new administration, um, we can not only rally the uh, allies around traditional transportation, whether it's bridges or highways or rail, but a lot, there are a lot of clean energy projects out there, uh, including electric charging stations that need fast track permitting, again, without changing the environmental laws. And perhaps with this administration and this new spirit of addressing climate change, those kinds of projects will be properly expedited. Thanks, Bruce. I think it's really important to understand the, uh, the connections between local, state, and federal government and how those have not necessarily worked in concert with one another. And then speaking as a sort of a pseudo bureaucrat, I guess, um, the silos that uh, exist in the way people think about transportation versus science versus innovation versus permitting for infrastructure is those need to be broken down. And I think that uh, the conversation as Bruce indicated with climate, with other, uh, other in connections, the fact that we're looking at funding shortfalls right now is actually spurring that dialogue a lot more than you might think. So, uh, but you also need more scientists and engineers and innovators that run for office because it's not easy to have these conversations with people who aren't thinking about this space. So I just want to put a plug in for that as well. And pilots, aviators. <laughs> so, um, okay, I have another question for Joe. I guess, Bruce, are you asking this or would you like me to go ahead? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so Joe, you might have sort of answered some of this, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. Uh, is this echoed right now? I'm not sure if everyone can go on mute and then I can see if that helps. Um, in the US, there's a federal program entitled Essential Air Service that subsidizes air service to rural communities. And does Canada have a parallel program? And I think you spoke a little bit to that. If not, what can PENWAR do to ensure that federal, state, and provincial governments are protecting this vital lifeline to Northern communities? Um, it seems like you sort of were, were on that topic. So I just wanted to ask if you wanted to add any more insight there. Well, I, I'm not sure. Um, how or if Penmore can help, but the uh, minister, Minister Garneau has asked for uh, input from air carriers as to uh, how best to structure an aid package. And um, I think that our program certainly needs some fine tuning. And I'll, I'll give you two, uh, two examples of that. Um, uh, <clears throat> we're receiving subsidy under the emergency wage uh, program under the Northern Essential Air Services uh, program. Air Canada is a player in our market and they're being subsidized as well under the wage subsidy program and Jazz, who provides capacity for Air Canada is also receiving a subsidy under the wage uh, subsidy program. So in essence, if you prorate the subsidies being provided to Air Canada and Jazz to the fly amount of flying they do in the Yukon market, um, you've got uh, taxpayers funding uh, financial relief for three different airlines to fly one route with airplanes flying around uh, with less than 50% load factor. So there's gotta be a more efficient way to spend the money. Uh, there's an environmental aspect to that as well. Uh, the Yukon government has purchased to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the uh, aviation or the transportation sector in the Yukon by 30% uh, over 10 years. If we could address the overcapacity problem, we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 30% uh, overnight. 
Um, and in addition to that, it would also provide uh, the necessary strength to the uh, to ourselves as a carrier to move ahead with a uh, fleet upgrade program, which would provide another 20% uh, savings in, in fuel and emissions. So um, I've kind of focused on the overcapacity being the root of the problem. And, and I, I think that if we can provide some encouragement and direction for the government to intervene, uh, they seem to be loath to intervene in the market, but my point is they're already intervening by providing subsidies, um, put some policies around the subsidies, attach some strings to them, and you can get better bang for your buck in terms of the dollars that are being spent. That answer your question? I think so, that was awesome. Thank you very much. And um, we do have a few more questions in the chat directed to you later, so, or the Q&A, so maybe that's something we can add to other folks. I'm just gonna pass it on to Yolanka as well for, for further questions. All right, uh, thank you, Vandana. Um, so I have uh, uh, some questions uh, that I'm going to direct to uh, to JR and to Adrian. Um, so as we know, um, and Vandana just referred to this as well with the siloing, the world of aviation and surface transportation, or the worlds of aviation surface transportation exist in two different places. And that's true with respect to planning, with respect to operations, with respect to regulation, and with respect to investments. So as, um, as we look at the development of advanced air mobility, whether it is um, in a more urban application, whether it is in a, a rural or a broader regional or metropolitan um, applications, um, how do we start to see these two modes of travel intersect? Where is the intersection of planning and investments um, in multimodal facilities, transportation hubs, um, such as vertiports um, for surface and air transportation? Um, and I've got, uh, I would add that um, not only for the infrastructure, but also for the operations. One of the pieces that uh, we have recognized early on um, as there have been proposals for vertiports on top of buildings in urban cores is that um, it's all very fine to put a vertiport on top of a building, but if the street below, for instance, is a through bus route, you're never going to be able to manage the ingress and egress of passengers up to that vertiport. So um, it, it really does not work to consider uh, the infrastructure and routes of um, urban air mobility without considering how it integrates in into the uh, ground transportation system, both that which exists and how you plan for them together. So I'm gonna turn it, I'll, st I'll start with JR, turn it over to you. And, um, and then I've got a, a follow-up question um, for both of you after we hit this first point. Excellent, uh, excellent point on that too, Yolanka. And just the critical piece that Roy brought up there as well on the Nordic Electric Aviation Group this is a great example of existing platforms that are in the world on setting those bars for yes, the sustainability requirements, but willing to share that information across the industry to make sure that we continue to raise that bar overall on the global aviation aspect. So one of our aspects at CAM that we've really solidified is signing a partnership with the Nordic Electric Aviation Group where Avanor has put the beautiful laws in for that pathway to zero emission aviation by 2040 and showcasing our roadmap in British Columbia for zero emission aviation 
building upon those existing policies and legislature coming out of the Nordic region, having the policymakers work with our BC government in establishing that roadmap and building upon existing platforms rather than having to create everything else. So it's a great point that Roy brought up. And we really hope this is a starting point for not only British Columbia, but then to share that both nationwide and then critically in our Cascadia corridor region, identifying that Oregon State, Washington State and British Columbia for our newly termed sustainable mega region. And as we talk about that intermodal piece, we know that advanced air mobility is not going to be the end all be all for all transportation needs. And so from day one, we need to be working with the experts in the urban planning, public transportation and existing aviation sectors to identify how the existing movement of people, goods and services can be complemented by advanced air mobility, not as a competitive piece. And a great example of this is the conversation of identifying how a high-speed rail could play a role in a large people moving capacity within the Cascadia corridor. There's a great opportunity to leverage that high-speed rail in conjunction with advanced air mobility for funneling traffic into those major in, uh, transportation nodes as a system effect for moving efficiently and more sustainably rather than just having a one-off solution designed to solve those problems. So the conversations that we're looking at at the British Columbia space stem from the public transportation providers such as TransLink, the existing uh, aircraft operators such as the incredible work done by Harbor Air and Greg's team and seeing how we can build upon those existing platforms, not walking in with all the answers and not trying to apply advanced air mobility where it might not make sense. Great, thanks JR. Uh, Adrian. Thanks for the question, Yolanka. Um, I, I would echo, well, first of all, I would echo and reinforce JR's comments around collaboration with public transportation providers, service providers, um, you know, looking at the existing mobility services that are already offered in communities and trying to understand how we look at, um, especially UAM as a potential for strengthening um, those existing networks, right? How do you look at, from a planning perspective, we wanna start with where are those known gaps in the networks? Um, how do we vet that against the technology range capabilities, et cetera? Um, how do we look at major transportation hubs and existing airfields air for those early development opportunities so that we're testing and getting to volume and environments that are friendly to it? Um, and then how do you really partner directly with both public and transport private transportation providers, again, to create more of a mobility marketplace um, versus what I think we've seen in uh, kind of the trend has been in mobility overall, which is to kind of get products out onto to the marketplace, especially in cities, but not necessarily um, with the goal of optimization of, of those transportation networks. So I think certainly tactically speaking, starting at your intermodal hubs is critically important. Um, the other kind of thing that I would just stress is building capacity. I think to your point, you know, in, in the question, there's a huge culture clash that exists between surface transportation and aviation. Um, and I think, you know, people who have been in surface transportation, you know, they know how complicated that is. You know how each can tend to feel sometimes, I think that uh, what they're doing is a little bit more complex than the other. And the reality is they're both very, very complicated. Managing an airspace, mapping out that network, and then ensuring that it aligns with what's happening on the ground is not an easy task. And I think it requires really deep communication and collaboration in order to truly understand value propositions 
um, articulate those to communities, right? And, and make sure that where we're placing uh, vertebrate infrastructure not only has demand, but is logical for the city itself. Um, I do think building that capacity and that communication, I mean, it's not easy. I think one of the things that drew me into UAM is the, the sheer complexity of the stakeholders that we have to address. Um, but I think if we can focus on that ground game and building capacity at the cities and at the state level, um, increasing some of the capabilities um, of, 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 of staff and, and of people working in government to understand aviation and at the same time reinforce that as we're doing national planning around airspace routing, that that conversation is critically important, right? So that, you know, demand in the sky overlaps, routes in the sky overlap with routes on the ground. Um, I think you know those are some of the, the the first steps that we're trying to take through a partnerships approach and working really directly with communities and planners and uh, and consumers to, to better understand where, why, and how should this particular infrastructure be built. Great, thank you. So one of the um, <clears throat> one of the aspects that that we at CAMI are looking at in our Urban Air Policy Collaborative, which is. Um, a group of state and city and provincial leaders um, that are discussing some of these policy and practice issues at JR uh, and CAM are a member of this, uh, as is David Fleckenstein with Washdot Aviation. Uh, we've been running this for the last almost six months and we're just getting ready to start our next group uh, along with an ongoing um, effort. Uh, some of our groups are spread out, some are regionally based. But um, one of the things we recognize is, is, and that we're working on is this division of roles and responsibilities. We actually started building out a RACI chart for those of you who are familiar with that, uh, really looking at the local level, the national level, um, and the industry level. So um, uh, my next question to JR and Adrian is, um, as, we, as we do that, we also recognize that there are roles at these different levels in terms of planning, um, in terms of day-to-day -day operations. For example, um, while we all recognize that the FAA is going to manage airspace, what happens if you, if you have um, multiple flights coming into a major transportation hub that intersects with, let's say, light rail and the light rail goes down. Where are all those commuters going to go? Vice versa, what happens if you have a weather incident and the commuters that are used to being able to fly into that hub and then take light rail for their next segment are not able to get there. Um, so there has to be a day-to-day -day operations coordination. And, the, and of course, cities operate on, in, a, in a regulatory capacity as well. So as we um, kind of expanding on what Adrian said with the complexity of these different roles, um, within the Cascadia Corridor and the larger Pacific Northwest Penwar region, how do we begin to develop a coordinated land use plan for this region uh, that, that will um, address all of these different, um, these different silos, whether it's aviate, uh, air versus ground transportation, whether it's local versus national, uh, whether it's roles of planners, operators, regulators, it's a three-dimensional chess game. So uh, uh, JR, I'll start with you. So the land use planning is a conscious topic that continues to come up from all of the different intermodal aspects. And what I just want to bring the attention to is really the incredible work, especially in the Cascadia region, 
coming from our tech heavy sectors on leaning into the data analytics and the smart city approaches that are building the platforms, the understandings, and the integration of all of these, not only transportation movement sides, but how that's layered into the actual urban planning transit in itself. And so what we are focusing on as we bring in the one additional node for advanced air mobility is how are we ensuring the correct, most efficient information is being provided to those urban planners such that it becomes that 3D chess puzzle, exactly as you mentioned, Yolanka, on designing out an efficient system for the moving of those people, goods and services in conjunction in the entire system, not just in a siloed approach. Lost my mute button there. And Adrian, go ahead. Um, it's a great question, Yolanka, and I think it's one, uh, it's a tough nut to crack for sure, but I do think one of the starting places is that we have to build capacity. And I keep going back to this concept of building capacity because, you know, one day when you go to permit a report, right, or you are going to go to a public process, like a public hearing to request variances or zoning changes, et cetera, um, you need the audience that you're speaking to to have some understanding of what you're talking about, right? We don't necessarily want that first engagement to be the trigger that says, okay, what's the city planning process um, to permit this new type of infrastructure? And so, but at the same time, as I say that, um, we're facing budget shortfalls, right, at state and local levels, and there is not a revenue um, associated with UAM. And as a result, right, you're looking at taking directly out of the general fund to, to, uh, to build that capacity internally. And so I think a couple of things, you know, trying to estimate and understand as we clarify the roles and responsibilities in the way that you guys are doing, um, trying to understand what is going to be required of these different public entities in terms of administration, both from a workflow perspective, from a cost perspective, trying to proactively identify how one can cover those costs, right? Where is that going to come from? What's kind of the scheme going to look like? Is it through permitting, et cetera? Um, I would say, you know, that is one, and, and then demonstrating what the potential impacts are going to be, right? Trying to really communicate with communities and create a data-driven approach for demonstrating economic, social, um, physical impacts with, you know, as a result of these spaces, well, I think help get that buy-in and also make planners feel like they should be building capacity in this area, right? I mean, you look at a lot of people who are in state and local government, especially local government, I mean, uh, they're, they're community-first advocates. Um, and I think, you know, especially when we talk about ED Tall and UAM, I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, to communicate, engage with the public process so that there is the rationale, the buy-in that was gonna be required to operationalize um, I would then say that in terms of trying to get to that multi-jurisdictional angle, you know, I think collaborative scenario development that can set a foundation for simulation and visualization could be really critical in this area. Um, and I think it's not necessarily something that just benefits UAM. I think what we've seen from transportation demand modeling overall is that it is flawed because it you know, reduces people to statistics and that has implications for equity, for land use efficiency, the land use network overall. Um, and I think if we can try and frame and maybe take advantage of the time that we have right now um, or over the next couple of years where we say, okay, how do we create a you know, land use system that doesn't just cater to UAM, but is more focused on 
people, place, performance outside of things like vehicle speeds, right? Um, how do we embed UAM in a broader conversation around land use planning that relates to electrification, automation, um, getting back to this kind of comprehensive delivery of a, of a real mobility system. Um, you know, I think that rather than having it solely focused on the UAM kind of conversation, um, you know, that might help us build the bridge and try and build that capacity a, a little bit more effectively with, with our partners who have not had a role in this space, um, historically outside of the airport. Uh, I'd like to ask the moderators, we've got, we're piling up questions in the Q&A and I want to make sure they distribute them to all five panelists. So uh, go ahead, you guys. All right, and Vandana, I'll turn it over to you since I've been asking questions. You want to uh, start working down our, our question list? Okay, do you, wanna, do you wanna take the first two though? Or do you want me to go, actually, you know what? I can do that. It looks like, I thought you had said you were gonna answer it. So I thought maybe you not, knew the speaker. Okay. Not necessarily. So, uh, all right, great. Well, the first two questions that we have, and we'll, we have actually answered a few of these, I think. So we'll kind of walk through them. But uh, Maria asks, what are some concrete and tangible actions that can be taken to support sustainable and green air transport in the region? I think we touched on a few of those topics, but I wanted to just open it up to the, to the uh, speakers here because you could sort of use that question to answer something you feel has not been addressed. Talk to your local and state representative <laughs> and, yeah. and tell them that you wanna fly from your local airport so that when you take that Uber or Lyft, it's a 15 minute ride and not an hour ride to the yeah. airport. You spend 15 minutes at the airport, just like you do when you arrive before one of Greg's flights and not an hour before, so you don't waste energy being there. <laughs> and you can fly to another small airport in an electric aircraft uh, and not uh, uh, waste emissions or energy there. So talk to your local representative about really supporting uh, bills or suggestions like those of Representative Slater that basically says, we need to change the way we behave. If we just expect change, but don't change the behavior, everything will be the same. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Roy, you're on the working group that is still not quite as ambitious as you would like, but they are highlighting six local airports to be pilot feasibility airports for that might help us determine what are needed for the 134 airports, I guess, that we have. And so uh, if, if there are cities that are, uh, you know, are chosen, if this, those small communities are chosen, it might be really great for people to get engaged and support that effort and be aware of it. Because I think Adrian, you're just so eloquent in how you spoke about how we have to educate people on what the value is, because then they'll be where we're at, but people are not, it's like a book, you know, we're at chapter 20 and they're chapter two. It's just, they don't have those other pages and how do we get them there? So it's a really great question. Thank you for that, Maria. Um, so Jake is asking, will four to eight place electric or hybrid electric aircraft enable rural air services to Northwest communities at affordable prices? I'm, I'm not sure what that means. I think maybe he's talking about numbers or does someone understand that? Uh, Greg, you're on mute. Uh, this one's good for you. Yeah, I think I can, um, uh, that's kind of what we do. Um, that, that's the size of the aircraft that we fly. Um, and, and the electrification of these aircraft, I mean, like we're, we're in this very unique position of being able to actually look at this a lot quicker, uh, sooner than, than any other, you know, a lot of most airlines and probably 
5% airlines in the world because of our short stage lengths, which are average half an hour and less in our scheduled route network. And, um, and that's, that's the market we serve. And so we're flying you know, from, from these, uh, these uh, rural communities into the major metropolitan areas. Uh, and, and we're doing it in, in aircraft that are, you know, fairly uh, expensive to maintain because we've got corrosion issues and, and, and the, uh, 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 the, the turbine aircraft are, are very expensive to, to run and maintain. So uh, the introduction of, of electric, uh, electric motors is going to decrease the, the cost very dramatically in terms of not only the fuel burn, but, but also the, the ongoing maintenance that's required on on these uh, on these motors, and uh, and so that that will be exponential, and we can pass that on. Uh, it just it just opens the market up, and it's what I alluded to earlier. Um, you know, the, the more people that can afford our product, the better, and and the better that people will be able to move around, and uh, the, the more people it's available to. So, and, and I'll expand on that in that we are used to today an aviation network that again is driven by the suppliers, by the airlines. Airlines have figured out the bigger the airplane, the more money they make. Now, I don't mean that as in they're greedy. It's just a really expensive thing to do is run an airline. And so they have to make as much as they can when in a good year, they're doing three to 5% margin. And so they need bigger planes to make more money. But guess what? Bigger planes means they can only go from bigger airports because they have to fill up those planes. If we come to electric and we start to look at these four to eight to 12 passenger aircraft, we can change the way we think about aviation. Don't think about it as this experience of having to, again, go to the airport and be there ahead of time with TSA checks and flying for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Think of it as going to your local van pool or your local minibus in the neighborhood. Just instead of right. driving for an hour, you're flying for 15 minutes. So imagine taking yeah. four of your colleagues, going to a small local airport and going to another small local airport. So the idea of masses is no longer going to be what the future of aviation is going to be. It's going to be very much targeted, true point-to-point -point, uh, transportation. Uh, that's great. I think that it's actually, that a lot of the questions here are actually talking about, they're, they're getting inspired by the 90 mile distance too that you mentioned, right? So I think that's really powerful. And when you think about affordable housing, which we're struggling with right now, you could start to see like the possibility even in, in policy. I wonder if it, um, you might speak briefly. The next question is on hydrogen fuel. It's for you, Roy. But I wonder if you could just speak also about the battery technology. Um, there, there was a question about lag time on that and with respect to Norway. And maybe you could just touch on that, you and Greg, perhaps. And, and yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, so I'll speak on it very quickly. Electric aircraft are defined by aircraft that are propelled by an electric propulsion system. Where the electricity comes from doesn't matter. It could be batteries, uh, lithium ion are the ones that are used today, but lithium sulfur, lithium metal, solid state are being worked on. It could be hydrogen fuel cells, which use hydrogen to create through a fuel cell electricity, again, that goes to the motor. It could be a bunch of gerbils turning really fast on a circle and creating electricity that way. It, do it doesn't really matter. Uh, the notion is it will really be in the future, what we believe, a right technology for the right mission. For smaller aircraft, four to 12 uh, passengers, maybe even up to 19 passengers, flying 500 miles or less, we're probably going to see them with battery electric uh, solutions because batteries are good enough even today to start doing those types of routes. For aircraft that are, go that are going to be 30 to 70 to 90 passengers in size, 
Think of the Dash 8s that are flying all around Canada and, and the US today, the ATRs, and they're going to be flying up to 1,000 miles in range. We'll probably see hydrogen fuel cells because the hydrogen fuel cells are much more powerful than the batteries, but they require way too much space to be effective in a smaller aircraft. But they're also not powerful enough to be in the really long range over 1,000 miles, over 100 seat aircraft, where we're still going to see traditional jet engines, but again, hopefully leaning towards sustainable fuels or hydrogen uh, as a liquid uh, propellant as well. So we're going to start moving away from today's one size fits all, where a 737 or an A320 is optimal to fly at 3,000, 2,500 miles at 38,000 feet, and yet flies to Spokane at the 20,000 feet for 30 minutes and never gets to its efficient cruise. So we'll start to see the separation of technology to the right type of mission. Um, the next question is a quick follow-up and then I'm gonna pass this on to Yolanka. Uh, in the next question, Roy, uh, someone is asking about the supply chain regarding hydrogen and whether or not uh, there's a way to transition that supply chain uh, from fossil fuel over maybe using abandoned oil and gas wells. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a, that, yeah, that's a really good point. A lot of the naysayers will like to point out that, well, you know, Roy, Greg's plane really wasn't clean because although the plane was electric, it took a lot of fuel to in one of these electric plants to create the electricity. People love to bring that up. And yet no one ever brings up all of the emissions that are, that are taken to create fuel. The pumping of the oil out of the ground, putting in a tanker to, to take it to some uh, refinery, the refinery process as well, and then these trucks that take it to the airport. No one seems to talk about that because to us that's invisible. Fuel just comes from a pump. Electricity, the beauty of it is, will get cleaner and cleaner. I believe British Columbia is over 90% renewable. Washington State is over 75% renewable. New Hampshire is over 95% renewable. Texas, oil country, is over 60% renewable energy. So electricity is getting more and more cleaner throughout its entire value chain as is hydrogen, by the way. There are already companies working on creating hydrogen from seawater, uh, not using fossil fuels, et cetera. So the beauty of electricity, be it uh, electric direct from the grid or hydrogen, is that there is a path to a clean value chain, a clean production, whereas fossil fuels will always remain what they are and will never get better. Thank you. And I'm just gonna hand it off to Yolanka to take on the other questions here as and involve the other panelists. Thank you. All right, thanks, Vandana. Um, I, I'm going to jump around a little bit so that we can get everybody in the conversation. And I'm going to jump to a question from Matt Morrison. It seems like the policy development is way behind the technology, especially in urban air mobility. What recommendations do you have to bridge the gap in understanding with regional policymakers, federal, state, provincial, and local? So I'm going to open it up and uh, just invite anybody to, uh, to to comment on this. I'll take the first stab at that, then we'll make sure we hear from everyone on this side. But I just go back to that similar point on leveraging existing platforms that are out there to build upon that knowledge and really have that collaborative piece, both, yes, from the local side, provincial and state, and on the federal piece. And as we've seen from the incredible work coming out of the, the Nordic region, how those international standards are also playing in. So we're, we are facilitating those conversations and trying to expedite them, knowing we don't have to create everything from the ground up initially, build upon the existing platforms. I think one of the things that I've encountered when, you know, being sort of a, 
you know, quote unquote pioneer in this in this electrification of, of aviation is that uh, there's an incredible amount of um, lack of knowledge from from even the, the sort of current participants in the aerospace industry, uh, and and in terms of where this is where this is going and how fast it's coming, and 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 the one thing that I use to kind of illustrate. Uh, to people exactly what's going on here is the amount of investment that's um, that's being made in not only the battery technology but but you know the the UAVs that I mean everything there's just there's just vast sums of money being poured in by by existing aerospace participants um, and and the ones that are forward thinking and and the amount of investment that's going on here is is to the point where this is irreversible I mean this is this is happening and people better, you know, take note of it and get on board with it, or get out of the way, or whatever it is. But they need to do something because it is coming, and they need to educate themselves about about where it's at and, and what's happening here. And Greg, I think um, I'm I'm going to lean on Adrian here because I uh, I completely agree with you in terms of the investment. And one of the interesting trends we've seen in the last couple of years is the investment dollars that are coming from. Uh, automotive companies, um, and and from a from a uh, technical production uh, perspective as well as operations, um, what what is being envisioned for advanced air mobility um, is really more akin to automotive operations than what we think of in terms of legacy uh, uh, aviation operations and production. So Adrian, I'm going to kick it over to you yeah. <laughs> since, um, since you're the example here. No, I, I appreciate it. I think, you know, uh, we're very, very focused, especially for UAM. I think there's a couple of things. We as an organization are extremely focused on affordability and how we innovate and leverage from our experience in automotive manufacturing, um, looking at different types of composite materials, right? How do we, how do we look at the, the vehicle? Um, and truly get it to the most affordable price point possible. Because I think, you know, public support for urban air mobility um, can only really be generated if we are showing that we have a pretty diverse set of benefits that we're offering to people. Um, and I think it's there, but I think we, we have to still refine the business model and ensure that that laser focus on affordability, um, which in many ways is what ended up right, proliferating the car um, is, you know, is, is, is a, is not a moving target, but continues to be the, the, the focus for us. I think when we kind of talk, think about the gap that's going on in terms of policy and public engagement, you know, I think flatly we need public engagement campaigns. We need, ta you know, we need actual professional, professionally deployed public engagement campaigns that leverage some of the same types of strategies that have been used to look at other types of um, of, of transportation planning. Uh, because we have a lot of people on the ground who have already focused many, many decades on how to reach audiences, how do you target that message. Um, and I think we have to couch it again from this larger conversation, as we are here, of aviation, transportation mobility more broadly, right, so that it doesn't look quite so niche um, and it would bring more people into the fold. And then finally, I would just say that I do think, especially with UAM, um, we need a consortium approach to providing some of the input that the FAA or other, you know, civil aviation regulators need in order to, you know, I, I think to some extent people are waiting for information and that isn't going to come. And I, I do think there's an, uh, there's an impetus on private industry to figure out what they want, be clear, 
um, be collaborative and thinking about the con ops and not necessarily waiting for that to happen for us. Um, so that, that would be my last point. Uh, any of the other panelists want to want to speak to this issue about uh, policy and its lag behind technology? I mean, I'm happy to speak a little bit about policy being a policymaker, if that's helpful. And uh, if somebody wants to add to what I have to say. Um, so you, I think you've actually answered a lot of those questions. Uh, there's a couple of questions here that talk about high-speed rail and its connection to electric aviation. And then there's a question about urban sprawl. So we, we touched on land use, but that's actually a really interesting question, right? Because uh, to Roy's point, if you're going to have affordable housing and you can live in other spaces, does that now create sort of this peanut butter approach, which we, we've tried to avoid. We tried to sort of create dense spaces and corridors so that we can protect other parts of our environment, or does that allow for uh, sort of a different way of existing and do airports kind of become hub. So I'd be really interested to hear what people think about that. Uh, I think we always have to be careful because when we're looking at the way roads and rail and everything has been developed, there is that risk that we, we lose our sort of our environment when we need a little bit more density in certain spaces. Um, with respect to high-speed rail, so I'll just leave that over here and let other people sort of respond to that. But if you look at high-speed rail, that's a couple of questions here in our Q&A. When you look at our geography and you're thinking about high speed, very high speed rail, uh, say from Seattle to Vancouver or something like that, you're looking at a $20 billion project. Uh, the, the type of geography and the engineering that's required is pretty significant. And so the difference is it's, we can see the logic connection, right? Between surface to air, um, because that's obvious. But at the same time, the way that the transportation committee is going to see it is what is the need now? And how do we address the now with the, with the long term? And that requires what Adrian's been talking about, a lot of A, public engagement, but B, the experts in the room. And that's why these working groups are ways to bring legislators forward and policymakers sort of thinking a little bit more broadly about the system. So I, I don't want to, but it looks like, JR, you might have some comments on that. I'll speak to the, the urban sprawl aspect first there. And this has been the fantastic conversation leaning in with the city of Vancouver's uh, urban planning department, knowing the mandates that they have on creating a city with walkable biking and public transportation as the top three priorities. And how, do we get, how we can identify advanced their mobility to not work against those policies, but in line with them because the urban sprawl aspect is exactly what we're trying to solve out in the region of Vancouver and Metro Vancouver, having the ocean, the mountains and the US border being very restrictive and ensuring that these topics are brought to the forefront on identifying how we can ensure the urban sprawl doesn't occur by the introduction of this technology. So it's a really good point that that's been brought up and leaning on the experts of the city of Vancouver and of course the surrounding municipalities for ensuring that that uh, is at the forefront of all conversations. I'm going to uh, call a two-minute warning here. So if anybody wants, because we have to wrap up by the uh, top of the hour, uh, if anybody wants to add some comments to that, that would be great. I, I would just say um, this is an interesting question. Um, and I know we've kind of gone towards densification and, and against urban sprawl over the last 10, 15 years, especially urban planning. I would just say that connectivity and sprawl are not necessarily the same thing. And I think that if we can focus on connecting places, you know, and 
actually making places around those points of connection. Um, you know, part of the reason our, we feel like we have sprawl is, is just by virtue of the way that the car works and what that has meant um, in terms of your ability to have densification without transportation alternatives. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I very much see this technology as an opportunity to remove some of the things that you have to put on the ground, like a highway, right, that, that actually disrupts your ability to create place and instead put it as we did when we looked at putting rail underground, right, opening up more opportunities for us to create individual places while providing more opportunity to connect those places to one another. I agree the with that. I think that sounds really great. The, the beauty um, of, a, of the notion of electric aviation is that it, it uses existing infrastructure. To do this idea of fast rail at $20 billion, you have to take up people's land mm -hmm. or government land and destroy property and destroy the environment to create maybe something that's good between Seattle downtown and Vancouver downtown. Fast rail won't help the San Juan Islands. It won't help Vancouver Island. It won't help anyone else that's around the, the rail line. And yet electric aviation all of these places I mentioned have not one, but multiple small airfields that could be used. And you could have water, forest, anything in between them, not be touched, maintain the pristine element of that nature, and yet have people live all over and be able to work all over. And so the notion of electric aviation will really enable that type of future that we all want when we go and visit the nice small quaint town and said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to live here? But my work is in the big city. I can't afford to live here. What if you could? Wow. Well, Roy, as usual, you managed to sum up an hour and a half in about a paragraph. That was great. Um, I want to thank our panelists and our sponsors and uh, just indicate that uh, from my perspective, you know, I think like all of us, I sit on many of these Zoom uh, sessions, but this one was really riveting. Um, it, uh, it's like a documentary, if we could capture this and sit down with every federal, state, provincial um, policymaker, I think they would come away convinced that we are on the best mission. So congratulations on a great report or a great session. As I indicated earlier, we are going to pull this all together in a report and send it to our policymakers. Uh, Joe, we also want to follow up with you and Air North and our ambassador and our folks in Ottawa. Um, uh, on this pandemic recovery to, to talk a little bit more about rationalizing these contributions uh, uh, to rural air service. We at, at Penware are big believers in aviation to rural communities up north because it is really a lifeline. Um, and uh, uh, we, with regard to the high-speed rail in the Cascadia corridor, uh, Penware is infused on many of the uh, subcommittees of the Cascadia corridor and we have been pushing with Tim Turber at the board and others uh, to uh, get the, the quarter to pay attention to electric aviation and UAMs. Uh, so we hope, hopefully in 2021, we'll, we'll make some progress in that regard. So unless there, if there's anything else, um, we're right at the hour. I wanna thank everybody for joining us. And